I think one editor, in my experience, called me the internet department. <laughs> so yeah, there was often, uh, and and I remember, I remember sort of joking with other people who were doing the similar sorts of jobs. Was like one, we never had any job titles that made any sense because no one really knew what it was we were doing yet. And two, you would always be introduced by senior management as our internet whiz kids stroke geek stroke digital genius and you're always like that is a very good sign that you have no idea <laughs> what I'm doing <laughs> and you know and, and and to be honest perhaps that that was in many ways a benefit it meant that we could um, people in those roles could be very experimental in that time but also it did it did make it difficult for you to gauge if you were being useful Hello and welcome to Freelance Pod. My name's Sachandrika Chakrabarti and I'll be your host. Freelance Pod is all about how the internet has revolutionised work. Each week I'll speak to someone working in a creative field and ask them how their industry has moved from an analogue to a digital age or how the internet has invented their job. If you like what we're talking about in the podcast, please do get involved on social. You can find Freelance Pod on Instagram as at FreelancePod. On Twitter is at freelance underscore pod underscore. There's a Facebook group called Freelance Pod. And you can also sign up for the newsletter. The URL is in the show notes. Don't forget that the success of this podcast relies on you, the listeners. If you do enjoy it, please do rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, also known as iTunes. This means that other listeners will find out that this podcast exists and they'll come and join us too. So welcome to the first two-part episode of Freelance Pod. Today's guest is Joanna Geary. She's now Director of Curation at Twitter and based in New York. Joanna started out in journalism in 2004 as a news and business reporter for the Birmingham Post. Remember 2004? In the UK, not many of us had heard of Facebook, let alone been able to join it. I joined the next year in summer 2005 after my finals. I could only join Facebook because of my university email address. Back then there was no Twitter, no Instagram, no LinkedIn. The internet for me was mainly MSN Messenger, the BBC, The Guardian, MySpace and a little proto-social network called Bebo.com. I still like mentioning Bebo.com. No one remembers Bebo.com, do they? (laughs) It was in these years that social media started becoming a part of our lives. Joanna talks about how blogging helped to enter a Birmingham-specific online network and how she used Facebook to find people during the 2007 Virginia Tech shootings. Joanna left the print side of the Birmingham Post and became the development editor in 2008, looking at how to make the digital world work for journalists. I think the Birmingham Post had a website when I joined, I think. Um, it feels like a very long time ago now. I'm pretty sure it did. Um, I think the things that that where I feel like I participated and had um, some sort of like involvement in was more around the rise of social media. So I... 
just going back a little bit, my my mum actually went back to university or, or went to university, sorry, to, to, for the first time when I was in my early mid-teens. And um, so I have like some really great memories of um, hanging out at the University of Sussex uh, when I'm a teenager and pretending that I was really a student, uh, which I thought at that time was the coolest thing ever. Um, when you look back, I was a terrible nerd. Um, but one of the things that um, I'm forever grateful for my, to my mom for was that um, she taught me how to use the reference library. Um, and the idea that there was this infinite amount of knowledge out there and information that I could just access if I just knew how to search for it was so fascinating to me. And I remember like <laughs> way overdoing it in many school projects, not because not just because, you know, I was trying terribly hard, but also because I loved the, to access that information. I felt great when I found something that I didn't think anybody else would find um, or information that, that was just a little bit more hidden. And I think I took some of that um, experience into my work at The Post, uh, which made me notoriously slow for getting out copy, um, Sorry, John, my old business editor. I apologize. I know I should have bashed it out faster. Um, but it, it, it was just something I really loved to do. I really loved to do that extra bit of research. And yes, the phone was okay for that. And, um, you know, sometimes you could, you know, with a lot of persistence, get the right person on the phone. But the, the internet was becoming increasingly a great way of being able to dig things up. You know, whether it's like contact details for a person or additional information that you wouldn't have been able to have before that went beyond what you could get out of your own um, archive. And so I think one of the, the big turning points for me was um, using some of those skills when um, the Virginia Tech shooting happened back in 2006, I think. Um, it's, um, as you may know, with regional newspapers, when a big incident happens in the world, one of the questions is, how is that relevant to where we are? Like, how do we, how do we localize this? Is there a local angle? And one of the things that occurred to me on that day was that Facebook was an incredibly powerful way for me to find people who were at Virginia Tech, but also had come from Birmingham, West Midlands in the UK, um, which is exactly what I did. Um, and I managed to track down a couple of people who uh, were attending the university um, who were originally from Birmingham, one of which was uh, someone who worked on the university radio station. And they had been actually locked in to the station when the shooter was on campus were able to tell that story to me and I think they were kind of surprised but also quite tickled by the idea that their hometown newspaper had come <laughs> come looking for them to to get their account um, but it occurred to me that there wasn't an easy way prior to social media for us to have been able to do that um, and that sort of instinct of being really excited by finding information that I don't think anyone else would have necessarily been able to find because of that sort of new route to getting it. That was really exciting to me. We were able to reach out and connect to those sorts of stories that we couldn't have got before. 
And I think that changed my perception. That was a little bit of the first instinct I think I had that this was a really powerful tool for journalism. After leaving the Birmingham Post in 2009, Joanna moved to London to take up a new web-focused role at The Times. So I got my break into the Nationals via a Twitter DM. I was working at the Birmingham Post in the digital development editor role, and I got a message from someone um, saying, do you want to give me a call? I think I might have a job for you. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Um, Who is this person? Because they had the handle music thing, um, which didn't sort of ring any bells which I now feel guilty about because I'd actually talked to them prior, but it was Tom Whitwell, the digital editor of the Times. Um, And he invited me down to talk about a role um, as a similar sort of digital development role within the Times. And um, that conversation continued. And then in 2008, nine, 2009, I think that's when I moved down to London, March, 2009. Moved down to London to start at the Times, which I um, fully admit I had every desire, but no expectation was going to happen. (laughs) I had seen so few people move from regionals to nationals and so many stories of of people who moved to London uh, to take on sort of back-breaking freelance shifts only to just get burnt out and have to come back. Um, a few years later, that I had pretty much given up hope that it was ever going to happen. And I'd started to think about, you know, what what was my life after journalism, which I didn't really want to think about. I didn't want to step away from a newsroom, but I had sort of got to the point where I couldn't couldn't see what was going to be next for me. Um, so I'd started to think about social media agency <laughs> and, uh, and starting my own business. Um, and then just completely out of the blue, in my mind, this came along um, and was like a dream come true for me. <laughs> I remember the day I thought I reached the pinnacle of what I wanted to achieve um, and thought that the day I thought I reached the pinnacle of what I wanted to achieve was the day I got offered the trainee position at the Birmingham Post. I had made it after all those years to being a journalist. And I remember walking very calmly out the newsroom, having been made this offer and getting as far as the ladies lose and thinking, I have to go in there and do a little dance because I was so happy. And I remember sort of like doing this crazy happy dance in, in one of the cubicles and then suddenly like stopping and thinking, well, well, that's it. <laughs> I've done it now. All of this time and effort and energy and and push forward has come to fruition. I literally don't know what I do with that now. (laughs) Um, And it was such a strange feeling um, because I think I had, through wanting to be a particular in a particular job so young, I had made that push forward part of my life. Um, and to not have it felt strange. Of course, as soon as I stepped into the newsroom, there was a ton of things I evidently needed to learn um, and um, kept me very, very occupied and pushing forward. 
um, for, for many years afterwards. But um, that was the day when I ran out of ideas, I guess, for where my career was going to go. So, and that was 2004. <laughs> and everything else, every part of the path has been sort of built through knowing what I'm passionate and interested about, but not really having a sense of any particular job that that could, that could be useful for. Um, and very often I, 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 I uh, my then boyfriend, now husband, uh, laughed at me. He's like, every time you get a new job, you're like, well, I think that's probably it now. <laughs> that's as far as it can go. Because they're, you know, every single one of them is so new um, and um, represents something so different that um, in terms of the industry I came from. Um, so yeah, I haven't I haven't really had a job title that 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 is any way traditional since I guess two thousand and eight. Here, Jonah talks about digital journalism community hacks hackers, now a global phenomenon with meetups all over the world. In London, it started as a series of nights in the basement of a boozer, where journalists and web developers can meet and chat. Considering how competitive media organisations are, this was an opportunity for people working in rival newsrooms to get together and to share their knowledge. And that's kind of become standard practice in digital journalism. Yeah, so I set up Hex Hackers after I arrived at the Times um, for a number of very selfish reasons. Um, one was that... Um, I felt very ripped away and divorced from the community of people that I had been a part of in Birmingham. And I felt the isolation in London a lot. Uh, not only were these people my mentors, but they were also my friends. And so I was, um, I'd sort of um, got to the point where I realized that that was kind of essential to my being. And I, was missing it a lot. I was missing having these people to bounce ideas around off of or just hang out with. Um, and being innately uh, an introvert was not great at turning up to other people's events um, and getting to know people. So I decided to just start my own. Um, I'd started something called the Birmingham Social Media Cafe um, back when I was in Brum. Um, and I was like, well, that worked. That gave me an opportunity to have coffee with clever people and interesting people who became my friends. Uh, maybe I can do something similar in in London. And I had a, a few failed starts. Um, and uh, finally, uh, Hacks Hackers came about from a conversation with James Ball, Guardian, ex-Guardian, ex-BuzzFeed uh, journalist, now author. Um, who had been talking on Twitter about wanting to learn to code um, and being curious about it. And I was too. And so we sort of talked about this idea of something called Ruby in the pub, um, but Ruby not being the curry, but the programming language. And see if we could bring engineers and journalists together in a kind of like cross-collaboration thing. Um, it didn't really work because it turns out that the pub element isn't really uh, conducive to learning to code. <laughs> um, but what it was conducive for was uh, building bridges and social connections. Um, and uh, the we had about 15 people, I think, in the first one. After a couple of months, we'd built up to about 30. 
Um, and uh, uh, one of we were visited by someone called Aaron Pilhofer, who at that time was an editor, digital editor, um, the New York Times. And he suggested that we joined a larger network called Hex Hackers, which had started in the US, of which he was a board member. So I thought, why not? And Hex Hackers London was born. Uh, and there's now a network of over about 4,000 people, I think, with like attendee ships of around 250 people a month. So it, it went on quite, quite a ride from this sort of basement of a pub uh, group of about 35, 40 people. I remember having to count and it was a really good day if we got over 30 um, to growing to be this uh, this meetup between technologists and journalists that um, has become a bit of a stalwart, I think, in London now. I cannot claim any uh, credit for it as it is today. They have an amazing... Um, we before I, um, A couple of years before I left for New York, I set up a committee uh, we re registered at um, Hacks Hackers London as a community business. Um, and that committee stands today. Uh, I resigned from it. My husband was a part of it and resigned from it before we left for New York. Um, and they are doing an amazing job and it's still going from strength to strength. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty cool thing to have been involved in. Um, and I'm, I'm very proud of it and, and, and the, the way that it managed to connect people. We even had a few marriages as a result of it. Back to Joanna's evolving digital job at the Times. She was working in a very visible position on the day that the Times' paywall went up back in 2010. So over time, the job became more consistent and became more about thinking about social media presence um, and comments, the common platform and moderation and, um, and that side of things. I think at the beginning, it was much more of an open brief, which was... Everything's changing thanks to technology. Um, work with the business desk and help them find their way through that, <laughs> uh, which was a pretty wide brief and, and pretty hard to narrow down at times. Um, uh, it, it did mean I, I sometimes ended up sort of going from um, one very different project to another project that was very different. And I think... Um, there are um, pros and cons of both of that. For me, being the age I was um, and the time I was working, it was actually very beneficial. Um, so during my time at the Times, um, I think I did projects such as everything from product development, like adding features to the CMS, to um, trying to... Um, encourage people and coach people on developing a social media presence to um, working alongside News International's customer service team to help them to understand how to bring their cu subscription customer service um, online to um, actually being <laughs> uh, um, a live, um, manning a live blog on the day that we moved over to a paywall um, to act as a sort of part um, journalist, like helping to report on the developments, but also part customer service person just to take incoming from people who are very unhappy that the Times was going behind a paywall. Prior to that, I was part of the project team thinking about um, the new paywall and, and worked on quite a big piece of research around um, 
um, funding models for journalism. Um, I tested out a data journalist position for the company, which then became a full-time role. Um, so yeah, it became it became a pretty wide brief because I think at that point there was just so many different opportunities that were presenting themselves um, with with like the rise of of different technologies that um, newsrooms were still sort of finding their way as to which ones are the most useful, which ones should we spend be spending our time on. And there was, you know, there was a lot of thrashing. Um, there was a lot of external companies who were. Uh, and I think still are, um, lobbying newsrooms to adopt their tools and adopt their practices um, and just trying to give like a consistency and a coherency to what was worth spending time on was probably like the priority at that point. I think one editor in my experience called me the internet department. (laughs) 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 So yeah, there was often... Uh, and and I remember I remember sort of joking with other people who were doing the similar sorts of jobs was like one we never had any job titles that made any sense because no one really knew what it was we were doing yet, and two you would always be introduced by senior management as our internet whiz kid stroke geek stroke digital genius. And you're always like, that is a very good sign that you have no idea <laughs> what I'm doing. <laughs> and, you know, and, and and to be honest, perhaps that that was in many ways a benefit. It meant that we could, um, people in those roles could be very experimental in that time. But also it did, it did make it difficult for you to gauge if you were being useful. Um, I think, I think it was sort of, um, trial and error with a lot of these things like um, a lot of people in these roles knew that there was kind of understood the structural changes that were going on understood the technology understood where things were going to a degree but nobody had all the answers and I think that that was frustrating for everyone all around Um, those people who were being advocated to um, and those people in the role that had to advocate um, and so people who were, we call it um, at Twitter, and I think in most tech companies, we refer to it as a growth mindset. So people who were had a growth mindset, who were just curious, wanted to learn, understood that not everything was going to work out perfectly, but it was worth a try because they could see that the, the, the winds of change were there. I think we're, we're incredibly important to people in these sort of development roles who were just trying to to carve a pathway out for for the company in terms of of what a digital future looked like. I think I I got to see the whole thing all the way through. So I was I was part of a lot of the internal discussions about how the how the paywall would be implemented, what the new website would do and how it would function. And so I knew everything from behind the scenes kind of intimately. And then to be placed in a kind of customer service position as well was, um, and to see people's reactions, misconceptions, um, just just being faced with mostly dissatisfaction that something free had become paid for, but also like some of the responses and reactions to the new features on the site was really, really interesting. I think one of the things that I take an odd joy from which 
um, it sounds like a bit of an old pastime, is goes back to some of the things that I was doing when I was younger. So I talked about the idea of trying to figure out who someone was and connect with them on a more personal level when I was was um, younger and, and in um, going onto internet forums for the first time. I think I did, I still to this day enjoy that. It's very time intensive and I can't do it as much as I used to like, but I think on that day I was able to, you know, try and, hold meaningful or bring um, meaningful com- um, exchanges with people who perhaps didn't come online feeling like they wanted to be very constructive in terms of their conversation. Um, often people engage when they feel very strongly one way or another, especially in those instances. Um, and being able to tease out from them like why they feel so strongly, which is often because they care very much about a product or a brand, um, was really, really interesting, um, helped us or helped me certainly to figure out like where some of our blind spots had been in terms of um, thinking about the change, um, but also gave me an opportunity to be to give thoughtful responses because I knew why some of the changes had happened. Um, so that was really, really fun. Um, but it was intense. Like it wasn't, it wasn't a majority happy crowd. I think one of the things I really enjoy is just seeing people who don't expect to be engaged with or responded to getting a response and how that affects how they engage with you after that. I think that's really um, interesting. I'm not talking about people who are out there to, to cause disruption. I'm talking about there's this whole other group of people who just think you're probably not going to listen to them anyway, <laughs> but they're going to they're going they're going to say something because it makes them feel better. Um, and then when they get a response and it feels like a human one, it can often really change how they talk to you afterwards. And I think I think that's always a really interesting engagement. It's not hugely scalable, but it's very meaningful and interesting, um, and something that um, I think has been undervalued a lot um, within all sorts of companies. Um, and I think uh, we now talk about community coordination very much from the perspective of marketing and online communities that are there to promote products and services. But um, I think I think there's definitely still um, a lot of space to develop it within news organizations. Um, and I think um, it got very aligned with comments and comment quality, which meant that it was deprioritized. But I still think that connecting with people who really care about the product but don't think they're being listened to is really important. And it's still a role I hope um, I hope to see develop within more newsrooms, um, whereas I think actually right now it's becoming more rare. Um, and And so I think the... The online community sort of principles about the idea of being able to be not only to engage but to be seen to engage was always the hope that that would provide a sort of halfway house. You can't necessarily talk to everyone, but you can show that you are open and willing to listen and to talk uh, by choosing, you know, to be able to engage when needs be. 
everyone involved in the exchanges believes that the power dynamic lies with the other person, <laughs> um, <laughs> which I think is why we end up often assuming the worst and assuming bad intent um, because I think often um, people who comment may think that journalists have all the power, uh, but journalists certainly don't feel like that on a day-to-day basis. Um, and the audience ultimately has all the power in many respects as well. So I think there is there is something, I think you're right, there is something very, very interesting about the idea that broadcast feels isolating, but I think being able to bridge that gap in a meaningful way that doesn't feel threatening to either party is is still a tricky thing to be able to do. Um, and really, um, I used to think that it wasn't very much of a skill to be able to hold sort of um, thoughtful and um, uh, nuanced discussions online. Um, I think I think it actually really is. <laughs> and I don't think we've learned to value it or identify it very well. Here, Joan is talking about how well-known people experience being on Twitter, and it's not always easy. The difficulty is, is that people in that, those roles are expected to do that, while many, many, many people who don't necessarily communicate respectfully are trying to engage with them. And I think um, over time, we're learning more and more about how we need to support people who are in those sorts of roles, because it's incredibly emotionally stressful (laughs) especially um when that is the majority feedback you might get over the course of your working life is from people who don't necessarily consider how important it is to have those sort of respectful online conversations so i think that there's there's certainly more that can be done and i know that that's something that we care a lot about and are trying to work harder on is is around thinking about mechanisms for healthy conversation and and what what we can do to nudge it um away from that idea that um someone has to go through an incredibly emotionally draining experience in order to be able to represent their work to the world In 2011, Joanna left the Times for The Guardian, where she became digital development editor. So, yeah, I I came to The Guardian again with an incredibly wide brief, um, again with a sort of digital development sort of named role. And actually, very explicitly, and something I would probably never do again without a job description, Um, and so I was brought in to try and, again, sort of find areas within what the newsroom was doing that felt like they would benefit from intervention. Um, a couple of things were around sort of like deciding why we had blogs and what was their, per- what was their editorial purpose and how were we going to focus that to... Um, if we bring developers into the newsroom what should their focus be um, and why Um, to over time settling much more into social and community again um, as I was starting to do at the times um, and looking at how how our social teams worked with um, our, our, our desks and how they were embedded and 
how how their mandate was different from your average reporter and trying to get clarity there as well. Um, and then um, over time, also picking up moderation and trying to make our moderation tools more effective. And then eventually working on um, UGC um, tooling, so the launch of Guardian Witness um, and trying to build that team for um, encouraging people to send um, user-generated content directly to the Guardian. I, I remember describing it to somebody as um, stepping, um, being on a treadmill and just being um, the pace being put up from like six to 11. Um, suddenly um, I was running, having to mentally run a lot faster to keep up with my colleagues. Um, and one of the things that was like very, very apparent to me in in terms of differences was um, at the times I felt a compulsion to try and come up with the ideas. Um, at the Guardian, that was ideas weren't the problem. The 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 role was to actually find ways of assessing the ideas and then figuring out how to implement the good ones. So um, it, there was much more of a sign up to wanting to be more experimental, to want to try different things, to want to be out there doing something new. Um, and that was a big cultural shift, I think. And it had a huge, um, hugely different sort of entrepreneurial instinct. So a lot of like some of the really significant changes or thinking kind of happened because individuals were encouraged to be entrepreneurial and to take these projects up and to try and deliver them um, and test them out and and have a go sometimes outside of of the pro the daily day-to-day -day processes of the organization which meant that like oftentimes um more was able to be done because the processes just weren't there to support that sort of innovation at the time um and I think that was always a really, or it was, it was one of the really interesting lessons for me because I think when you're bought into a role where someone says you need to change the newsroom, um, at least for me, I was like that means I need to change the processes and the culture and the attitude across the board, um, and so so much of what I learned from the Guardian was like you need you need so many things to fall in place to make that happen that it's actually quite rare to be in a position where you can affect change at, from a kind of like structural level like that. Um, and actually a better place to start is by fostering that entrepreneurialism and making sure that like it's being directed in a way that kind of reaches your goals so that you can, you can see um, the rest of the newsroom can see great examples. Of, of where you want to go. It may not have been embedded in a process, but it gives people like a pointer in the right direction. They can see where you want to go, which I think was really interesting. So that's the end of part one of my interview with Joanna Geary, Director of Curation at Twitter. We leave her at The Guardian in 2013 or so. The rest of her story will be on next week's episode. So make sure you listen. Well, that's it for another episode of Freelance Pod. If you enjoyed what we talked about in this episode, please do get involved on social. You can find Freelance Pod on Instagram as at Freelance Pod, 
On Twitter is at freelance underscore pod underscore. There's a Facebook group called Freelance Pod. And you can also sign up for the newsletter. The URL is in the show notes. Don't forget that the success of this podcast relies on you, the listeners. If you do enjoy it, please do rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, also known as iTunes. This means that other listeners will find out that this podcast exists and they'll come and join us too. That's it for now. Speak to you again soon. Goodbye.